I'll, I'll stop. Um, what we were going to do this morning is we were going to jump into a four-week series that's now going to be a three-week series starting next week called The Problem of Truth. Uh, and this morning we're going to talk about something different. It was actually the first time ever. Is, by the way, is John Harris here? I doubt it. Is John Harris, I, I doubt he's here this morning. He's getting married at four o'clock. He's not, you're not in here, John, are you? So John Harris, our middle school um, pastor, middle school director, is getting married at 4 o'clock today, which is kind of cool. And so I've been thinking all week because I have to do that wedding as well, get to do that wedding as well. Uh, and so just a lot of different topics going through my head. And this idea of life, one of my seminary professors, my Old Testament professor in seminary, had this phrase that he took from the Old Testament storyline that life is relentlessly difficult. Now there's no connection to doing John's wedding and, and the thought that life is relentlessly difficult. But, um, yeah. but you know, I had that thought in my mind, and then I saw a Facebook post from a friend. And this is the first time I've ever, I've ever created a sermon off of a Facebook post. But it was, the Facebook post was just, God, give me strength. And I remember looking at that, and it just caught me. It just... It just hit my eyes in an interesting way, and, and I just thought about that all day, and I thought, wow, that's an interesting phrase, and, and I began to think, what, what is the sermon that goes with that, that cry or that plea or that statement, God give me strength? What is the, what is the sermon that kind of fits with that? Because there's something so honest about that phrase, God give me strength. There's something so real about it, and so I began thinking about it all week, and then just decided that we would just do a a God Give Me Strength Facebook sermon. And then next week we'll start into the, the series called The Problem of Truth, which I'm jazzed about. Um, but here's the situation. I want to kind of draw it out for you. We kind of live, so uh, we'll just title it, okay? That's not centered and it's going to bother me the whole the whole. Man. Um. Ask the staff. I really am. I really am like that. Um. Okay, so here's the deal. We live with these expectations. So if this is time and this is happiness... We live with the expectation that over time, happiness increases, right? You do something for a certain amount of time, you expect a certain kind of results, and that, that those results that you expect is the maximization of happiness. And we live with, with that, set, we're born with that set of expectations. It says in Ecclesiastes that, that eternity is on the hearts of men. We, we kind of have this, this sense of how things could be or ought to be, and then we're confronted with the fact that they're not the way they should be, not the way that they ought to be. And so we, we end up with this set of expectations, and as time goes on, we're confronted with things over time that aren't where they should be. They're, they're here. And that's, that's the life that we kind of live. It's, it's what we experience as reality. Now, if you turn to Exodus, 
We're going to look at the Israelites real quick. And the interesting thing about the Israelites is that it, it becomes the metaphor, it becomes the analogy, the illustration of, of our spiritual walk, of, of what the spiritual life actually really looks like in some sense for everyone. It's this archetype uh, of spirituality. And so the Israelite story, if you remember, they're in slavery in Egypt, and later that's likened for us that we're in some sense in slavery to sin, and we're set free from that like the Israelites were set free from, from Egypt. And then there's this in-between time, and then eventually there's this promised land uh, flowing with milk and honey where it's all going to be good. And the promised land in some sense is our relationship with Christ and then ultimately for the individual believer, ultimately um, our eternal life. And in between there's this kind of journey that God has us on and it's a real test of faith. And the righteous, those that really trust that God's going to get us from here to here, the righteous will live by faith. So there's this real... There's this real uh, metaphor going on with the Israelites. And in Exodus chapter 16, Exodus chapter 16, we see where these Israelites have come out of Egypt. The euphoria, the joy of, of being free is kind of worn off a little bit. And the reality has set in that they're in need. And so in chapter 16, it's this. It says, the whole Israelite community set out from, um, uh, let me just skip down. Uh, in, in verse 3, so chapter 16, verse 3, the Israelites said to them, to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around with pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And that's the, kind of the, the thing that precipitates God saying, I'm going to provide for you and it's going to be in the form of this manna. Um, it's going to be like a dew-like you know, it, it describes it later on, but it's like a, a grain kind of a bread kind of a meal that's going to sustain them. Nothing fancy, but it's going to get them, get them through, through the desert, so to speak. But the feeling is, as we came into the desert, the euphoria wears off, and it's like, hey, wait a second. Over time, you let us out here, and things are worse than, than they should be, than what we think they ought to be, than we expected that they would be. And so the cry was, man, it would have been better had this whole thing not happened. We just want to go back and hit the reset button or, or have died, not have to deal with this, okay? And so God says, I'll, I'll take care of you. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to provide for you. And, and he kind of brings it up. But have you ever felt like that? That where God leads you to or in life where all of a sudden you wake up one moment, uh, one day, and, and you look down and it's like, it would have been better had I just stayed a non-Christian, had I stayed not married, had I stayed in that other job, had I not moved, had I not whatever. And you begin to kind of blame God and say, how did you, in leading me, take me to this dead end, take me here? Because my expectation is that in following you, God, things would have gotten better over time. So the Israelites... Um, get excited for a little while again. Uh, and it's, it's kind of this same picture of what life is like for us. In those moments, whether it's office politics, there's a great book called Silos, Politics, and Turf Wars. Have you ever seen that business book? Patrick Lencioni. Um, office politics kind of can eat you up. You know, the relational difficulties, the Psalms talk about enemies and all this 
stuff that happens in our interpersonal kind of things. And there's this idea in which this is going to happen, um, and it, it affects our sense of manifest destiny. We have this spiritual manifest destiny. And like the Israelites, God can kind of resolve it for a time, and we kind of feel like, oh, wow, I'll praise God. But then we find ourselves again in this spot, and life presents itself to us as being relentlessly difficult. Because what we eventually will learn is that it's not just moments of pain like this or moments of disappointment, but that a lot of life has seasons like this. That you could end up in a divorce or a loveless marriage or your economic strata based on education or other factors isn't going to change or your health situation is something you're going to have to live with that's not going to go away or the loss you just felt or had to experience or endure that real pain it might get numbed to some degree but it is a season and nothing will change that and so what we begin to learn is that our sense of expectations that are frustrated eventually find this this rut where it's not dealing with momentary things it's dealing with whole seasons the Israelites faced that in the desert after a while the manna wasn't good enough because it was just so monotonous and so unpleasurable and they began to grumble about the manna there's another type of picture we can look at in Ezra it's a tough place to find in the Bible If you're like really good, you can catch up to me here. Um, If not, I'll just read it. But in Ezra, you see a really interesting thing. Now, to set the tone here, you've got the Israelites that once were this glorious nation. And under Solomon, Solomon built this glorious temple unto God, a house for God. Uh, David wanted to build it. God said, no, you're a man of, of, you've got blood on your hands. You're not going to build it. Your son, Solomon, he's going to build my house. God kind of mapped it out, and this glorious house was there. You know, in, in some sense, a representation of God's glory. And this was the temple. And what happened is after uh, Solomon's son, who ended up being really not wise, even though the book of Proverbs was written for him, and what you begin to realize is uh, that education is an internal thing. It's not an external thing. It's not just uh, being surrounded by knowledge. It's internalizing it. Uh, Solomon's son blows it and puts the whole nation of Judah and Israel on this course ultimately to be disciplined and kind of taken away into captivity so that God can eventually bring them back and start them over. Well, in this whole thing, the temple is destroyed and eventually over time, Ezra the priest comes back and he's going to begin to rebuild the temple. And then later, Nehemiah will come in and he'll rebuild the city wall. But so as they're going to rebuild the temple, the book of Ezra talks about this. Uh, In Ezra chapter 3, we see how the people of the, the, the leftovers, the, the leftover people in Israel, um, gather around when the foundation stone is laid. And listen to kind of how it reads. This is like starting over. We, we begin, we, we're going to get to start building the temple of God again. It's in some sense this joyous rebirth, right? This, this new thing and we're finally getting going. And so there's this backdrop of joy to it. It says this, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, verse 10, the priests in their vestments and with the trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. And with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good and his love to Israel endures forever. 
And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Do you, do you get that sense of hope? Okay. Now listen to this interesting verse. But in the midst of all this celebration, in the midst of this joy, in the midst of this rebirth, in the midst of hope, but many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had been, the former, been at the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. So you've got the people that are excited, and then you've got this whole other group that's like weeping and wailing and depressed. And the reason they're depressed, does anyone know why they're depressed? In those days, I mean, I'm sure it's the same way today. It is the same way today. It just looks different. Like, if you're going to build a skyscraper building, like a huge building, have you ever seen kind of how it starts? It starts like below the ground. And they lay like these foundations that, that literally are going to be able to hold up that whole superstructure, Okay. It's the bottom that, that shows you what the top is going to look like, okay, how significant it's going to be. And when they laid this foundation stone, you can tell from the size of that foundation stone, because everything is going to key off it, you can tell from that foundation stone how big, how, how intricate, how whatever the rest of the building is going to be. Small foundation stone, not that glorious of a building, Glorious foundation stone, probably a glorious building, right? Does that make sense? Well, this is a, a, a makeshift deal. This is a remnant, a small group of people without the ec- economic resources, whatever, and they're just rebuilding the temple, and, and they bring in and they lay down the, the, the foundation, the cornerstone. And some people are excited because it's beginning. Others look at it, and they know right away this isn't going to be like it was last time. This isn't going to be near the temple that, that was here under Solomon. This is going to be something less than. And that's the fascinating thing is if you've never experienced something, it's real easy to be happy. But it's really, it's really hard in life to go backwards, isn't it? And we deal with this with our kids all the time. Like we can't open doors, you know, that, because then we can't get the kids back through the doors, you know. So if we do too much dessert then it's hard to start taking dessert away, right? The people that hadn't known the temple of the Lord were excited. The people that had known the temple of the Lord and saw how this one was not going to compare well um, grieved over it. And they wept. And it's a picture of a season of disappointment and how that comes about. There's a lot of you here, um, a lot, I think all of us at some level, we, we all hate change. It's not a generational thing. Everybody hates change. It's just the older you get, the more, things you, you, more time you have to get used to things, you know? But, but everyone hates change. And I think there's a lot of us here or a lot of you that, that really struggle with America changing. It's, it's not static. It's not the way it was. It's not how you, you grew up enjoying it. It's not your comfort zone. It's not um, as glorious in certain ways that you wanted it or, or, or expected it to be glorious. And now you look at things and you struggle with it. Or church isn't the way it was. Or, um, you know what I'm saying? It, we deal with this. There's things that change. There's things that don't compare favorably. There's things that matter to us that when we look at them, we say, it's not the way it's supposed to be. 
It's not the way I want it to be. It's not, it's not making for a happier life. Things aren't getting better. And we deal with that. And so not only is it moments, but it's also seasons. And that's the whole book of Ecclesiastes. You know, it was really interesting. When, uh, when I first became a Christian, I went, I'd, I'd read Sports Illustrated. And like the, I used to, back when USA Today was the only color newspaper. You guys remember those, those days? Anyone? Yeah, I, I loved it. It was really into the color. And back when the USA Today was color, I, I would just always get the sports section. It was in color. And uh, I would read that and maybe a little bit of Sports Illustrated, and that's all I ever read. Never read any books in high school. I was that guy that did the Cliff Notes, like literally, you know. It wasn't just a joke. I actually went and got the Cliff Notes. Um, and then when I got saved, I felt like I was supposed to read something spiritual and invest myself in what happened is I went down to the, the bookstore, and I was really ignorant about, about Christianity at that point, and I bought Henry David Thoreau's Walden because it was the only Christian book I knew about. Because um, I remembered something about, like, you know, de- the Dead Poet Society, and I don't know. I mean, it just, it's not a Christian book, but um, it was the first book I ever bought. And I read Thoreau, and I loved Thoreau, because Thoreau had this life-affirming kind of tone to him about wanting to, like, find deeper meaning and in, in in a spiritual sense, and saying no to the things that, in some sense, can rob us of all that. And, and I'd loved throw and then quickly moved on to actual Christian books you know but kind of went forward with it but what I loved about the book of Ecclesiastes when I finally read Ecclesiastes if you've ever read it in the middle of the Bible there is it's a lot like throw it's like it's the craziest thing in the middle of the Bible you have this whole book of Ecclesiastes that really wrestles with some of the absurdities of life yet wanting to, to point towards that north star meaningless meaningless says the teacher Everything is meaningless, chasing after the wind. And so, you know, it kind of starts with this whole idea of, you know, things don't look like this. The good people suffer and bad people sometimes end up good. And it it doesn't all make sense. You know, and in the middle of all this, there really is a sense in which eat, drink, and be merry. And and there's a time for everything. It's just this real interesting book of, that if you like philosophy or just, I don't know, I mean, you're going to love Ecclesiastes. But the book of Ecclesiastes wrestles with this conundrum. Life isn't the way it's supposed to be, the way we would expect it to be, the way it it seems it ought to be, to favor the just or the righteous. And it doesn't do, it's not predictable. So the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of like that. And so there's this whole interesting thing going on. And in the middle of it are our emotions. And we see in the Psalms, all throughout the Psalms, and the beauty of the Psalms is it puts into our language the prayers that are really going on in our heart. I remember when I was the first Christian, I read the Psalms, I was like, ah, I don't get it. You know, my grandma had a favorite Psalm, but I don't get it. And I really didn't like the Psalms. Um, then I had a girlfriend break up with me, and I started reading the Psalms, and I was like, oh, man, these are deep. These are just, <laughs> man, it hits me right here. You know, and, and it's like what I began to realize is the Psalms aren't about they're not about teaching you about stuff that happened, history. It's not historical narrative. It's existential writing. It's, it's putting into language the felt quality of what it means to be human and, and doing it in a prayer and being very real with pain and also very honest about the universe and, and what's going on that way. And then it always tends to resolve 
with this kind of hopeful, yet I will trust in the Lord. So you see the psalmist literally talking to God in a way that's like, you know, you kind of look around, are you allowed to talk to God like that? And it starts that way, but then at the end of the Psalms, it comes back to, yet I will trust in the Lord. And there's this real sense of, even though this is my experience, God, I trust you. I know that you're sovereign. I know that you're over everything, that you're ultimately in control. And so even though I'm not experiencing pleasure or happiness, even though I can't get a sense of how it's going to all turn out, I'm going to wait on you. And that's that amazing phrase that shows up all throughout the Old Testament, wait on the Lord. And so there's this kind of hopeful trust that in the midst of this, yet I will wait on you. Even though I'm in this desert, yet I'm going to trust that you're going to get me to that promised land, that it really will be good. Psalm 23 ends with that. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. We just talked about walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And it ends with, but surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's really what it means that God is our shepherd. It doesn't mean that our experience of circumstances is going to be this. What it means is that in this, we have a God who is sovereign and relational, who will go with us in his goodness and his mercy will be with us even in the midst of pain. So the Psalms are this amazing thing. Well, we come to modern day America, we come to these instances of God, give me strength. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I'm in pain. I've got this season of life that I just saps the strength out of my bones because I know it's not going to change. And we come to those moments and, and we find it harder and harder to look at God and say, yet I know you're sovereign, I'll wait on you, I'll trust you. And, and why is that? There's something really interesting that's happened in American culture. And I kind of, this is a prelude to our truth series the next couple weeks, but what happened at the turn of the century, late 1800s and then going into the 1900s, is that uh, we Americans threw out our one contribution to the world of philosophy. You know, it's like 2,000 years. We got, we got one in there. Um, but Western philosophy doesn't really affect America. You know, I mean, it, it just, it was all on the continent and on the islands and whatnot. And, and America didn't really do much uniquely with philosophy until William James... Oliver Wendell Holmes, Charles Saunders Pierce, a group of guys from New England uh, that lived through the Civil War and coming out of that developed what's called um, pragmatism. Okay? American pragmatism is a philosophical system. More specifically, it's a system, it's a philosophy of truth. Okay? Epistemology. It's, it's a philosophy of truth. Let me try and unpack it a little bit because it's really not that complicated. But so we created pragmatism. And what pragmatism, from the Greek, and the Greek really means like business-like, um, so if you just think of inputs and outputs and very mechanical and, and whatnot, it, it's the word pragmatism, like it sounds, means that it has to do with a certain set of results. So their view was that truth is what yields a certain set of results. It's what works. If something works, if you, if you put inputs into a system and it works on the backside, then those inputs were true. So truth isn't something that's objective that serves reality. Truth is something that is tested by its ability to perform and yield the proper outputs. So truth 
has a, a working quality to it. It has to prove itself. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Well, what is it trying to prove? What's the, the litmus test? What are the metrics for proving if something worked and is therefore true? Well, the litmus test is, is this. The greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people. It's happiness. It's, it's peace. It's, it's this. And so what we did in America, which is really fascinating, is we, we took what's our common human expectation and we codified it. And instead of it just being an expectation now, we're actually going to build our whole system of truth around it. And I don't have the time to, to go into it. It would be really fun. But if we went into it and demonstrated how our education system and our political system and almost everything in America has elements of pragmatism built into it. But, but what I really just want to draw out is we've grown in America to expect, it's our kind of, again, spiritual manifest destiny, that if Christianity is true, it will work. And if it works... I will experience what? Happiness. Now, don't get me wrong. You've probably heard me preach before that happiness is not a four-letter word. It's not a bad thing. C.S. Lewis said, um, it's every Christian's duty to be as happy as he or she can be. It means that at all times, you're presented with the ability to be content. Whatever the circumstances, Paul says, whether I'm in need or whether, I, whether I'm here or whether I'm here, I've learned to be content, to be able to rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The idea is that there's always a way to be as happy as you can be, not happier than, than possible, but at least this happy. And that's what, you know, if you've got kids, that's what perplexes you is you'll look at a kid that's pouting and you're like, there's no reason for that. I mean, I kind of have a sense of where your, your ceiling is. And you're not living up to your ceiling, and that just frustrates, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And so, it's a good thing to be as happy as you can be. A frowning Christian is, is a, ought to be a contradiction in terms, okay? So happiness isn't a bad thing. But what we've done with this kind of pragmatic Christianity is said, if God is true, and I employ God in the services of patterning my life, Okay, then it ought to, or he ought to, work and yield this certain set of affairs, which means things always get better and never get worse. So when we find ourselves in this situation crying out, God, give me strength, whereas for the psalmist it was an existential thing, I'm experiencing pain and I have to, in some sense, know God that you care about my individual pain. We all come in here this morning, I don't care what your pain is, even if, if it's secret, private pain, if it's public pain, you're wanting to know a little bit that the people around you care, a lot more that God cares. Do you know God and do you care? And that's where the Psalms start. It's existential and it's a cry and it, and it wants an answer that says, yeah, I got you. I'm a shepherd and I'll lead you. I'll take care of you. Okay. We have a bigger problem now. Like I said, it's not now just existential. Um, epistemology is the subdiscipline of philosophy that has to deal with how do we know what is true. Okay? So when we have this situation now, 
we, we feel it existentially, we also have a crisis in, in, what, in our whole f- framework of seeing reality and what we take to be true. We have a truth crisis. Because God, I took you to be true, and it's not working. So that must mean, or at least I'm struggling with, whether this is really true at all. Because truth works. Uh, The input, God, I put the right input in. The output is wrong. And I know from math and and from mechanical, business-like stuff, if the output is wrong, then it really has to do with the input. Garbage in, garbage out. Garbage. Wow. Garbage. This is garbage. I can't say that publicly. My wife might be frustrated, or I want my kids to, to grow up believing in God. I feel like there's a value to that. Yet inside, truth, God's truth, feels like garbage. It's not working. It hasn't worked. It didn't work. And so we have a real epistemological crisis. And we begin to start looking for what? What, we're, what we've been programmed to, to, to look for. We start looking for something else that will work. And by proxy, we start looking for another truth. Do you guys see? I mean, are you, you, you following me? So when we get these Christians, and we begin to say this publicly, like, yeah, I believe in Christianity, I believe it's true, inside we're like, man, maybe, maybe like a little, I mean, I, this isn't against yoga, but, you know, I just can't think of anything else right now. Maybe if I do a little bit of yoga, um, or maybe if I secretly go spend a lot of money, or maybe if I secretly go look for a different spouse in my heart, or maybe secretly if I, I got to find something else, another input that I can test to see if it works. And if it works, then it was true. And now I've found my path again and I can keep moving forward because we've codified this. And so when we have this crisis now, it's not just a crisis of experience, it's a crisis of belief. And so when I talk to people in pain these days, it's not, where is God in this? It's not, it's, it's, I'm not even talking to God because I'm over here going, how could this happen? I don't know that I believe in God. I don't know that, I don't know that I believe that God can be good because my litmus test for God's goodness is in some sense the results and And so we're not even really talking like the psalmist to a shepherd that we need to know cares about us. We're having this crisis of truth and and reality, and we're disappointed with God. Just like when you buy a computer and you get it home and it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Have you ever had a computer not do what it's supposed to do? My stress levels, when the computer doesn't do what it's supposed to do, I'm nothing blows my top quicker than something that is not doing what it's supposed to do. And, and we're blowing our top with God. We're, 
We're, we're disappointed with God. You're not doing what you're supposed to do, God. You're not being very businesslike. You're not being pragmatic. You aren't pragmatic. So this whole God give me strength thing comes back to, I think, how we see reality. How we see reality is going to affect how we go to God with our very real pain that will always be there in one way, shape, or form. But if we have a certain way of seeing reality, a certain way of, of processing a certain picture in our mind, literally our whole faith journey is going to be filtered through that. So it's why I, I more and more, it's hard, as a, it's hard as a pastor, like you come in each week and what you want to do is hit a home run. And then walk away, run the bases, and it's like you're done. And then you wake up Monday and you're like, oh, got to do it all over again. You know, like there is no done. And, and it's, I'm getting to the point where there's less and less a desire to hit a home run. It's not it at all. Like no massive thing is going to change on any given Sunday. But over time, the most important thing we need to be able to do when we come together as a community, one is learn to love each other and build relationships because that takes time. It takes investment. It takes making it a priority. It takes all those kinds of things. But over time, we have to collectively shape our picture of processing reality. We have to, as a community that believes in truth and that believes in God and that believes in Christ, we have to collectively shape our, our lenses to fit that. And as we do, we, we grow more and more spiritually and it gets easier and easier to walk by faith, easier and easier to trust in God like the psalmist, and easier and easier to identify with each other's pain and to bear one another's burdens. It, it, it's, it's just slowly changing our minds in Romans chapter 12. It says, renew your minds. And so when half, like the majority of the church, I've said it before, like education isn't sexy. It's not. If we talk about Nicaragua, Haiti, Africa, Cambodia, if we talk about anywhere, 99% of us that have a heart are going to immediately go, man, I'm in. I'm excited. How do we help? If I talk about Kiln's fall class lineup, I mean, you know, most of you didn't even hear the end of that sentence. You were already asleep. You know what I mean? Like education isn't sexy. It's not something that you, you go around, we go around as a felt need saying, if only I had more education. Yet it's the foundation. It's, it's like that cornerstone again. And if we really want to be transformed over time, part of it has to do with our minds. Loving God with our minds and learning. And like we said last, a couple weeks ago, wisdom in some sense is parasitic on knowledge. It needs pieces of the puzzle on the table, data points with which to look at, discern, and make decisions. And as a church, where I'm going with this, each week isn't a home run thing. The whole thing, what we do here, what we value, what we prioritize, ties back to education. Because if we want to help each other with pain, part of that begins with helping each other with how we picture and view and see the lens with which we approach reality. If I look at my daughter and I say, I want to help you with that pain, you know, that you, you wanted a big bubblegum thing and you're crying like a baby because you didn't get it. Like, part of me wanting to help you with that pain is, 
helping you grow up. You know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? And so church is a, about us. It's a body that grows together, Ephesians 4, knits itself together and grows up into the head, which is Christ. And so in 1 Peter, we have that wonderful doxology, which says, grow in the grace, that's the experience, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So when we're doing Kiln's classes, when we're talking about traveling, it's not just like, hey, this is a cool way to like get away on vacation. When we do Redux, and if you don't know about it, we have a Q&A service that follows this service every week. So 10 minutes after the service, there's a question and answer service, and it's just any and every and whatever question. Why do we do that? Because nothing gets closer to the heart of where the conversation is really at than starting with your questions and going this way. And so some of the most amazing stories that the elders get to hear, the leaders get to hear, the staff gets to hear are, are the stories that come out of Redux because it's right at the heart of wrestling with faith and with truth and how we understand and how we see these things. It's why we do Redux. There's a reason to it. Right now there's a part of my brain that's saying, we need a conclusion to this sermon. It's really, really good. Uh-huh. And, uh, and you know what? We're just going to forget the conclusion this week. You know what? It's not about any one week. It's about the progress of the whole thing. Next week, we're going to dive into truth. We're going to talk about the problem of truth. It's going to be super fun. Um, I was actually like excited on vacation about that, which you know, you're not supposed to be excited about truth or sermons on vacation. Um, but we'll start that next week. I'll just go ahead and intro and then pray for our offering and uh, we'll have special music come up and we'll take the offering in just a minute. Um, but I, I just long for a church, a, a, you, a bunch of you, a percentage of you that would get excited with me, that we could be excited together about the possibilities of what God can do through this little church. I mean, that's what gets me going. That's what gets the staff to put in extra hours and beyond what they're paid for is we have this sense of excitement about what God can do through us and in us and around us. And, and I think we're just looking for that camaraderie and that solidarity. And we know it's out there. And, and as we go into the fall and we begin to reconnect, because no one's been here all summer, it's cool, but uh, just being able to connect around that that sense of hope, that this, regardless of experience here, God is sovereign and God is good and he is true and we can serve him and that as we serve him, it's our verse that we took when we planted the church four years ago was out of Ephesians, Ephesians 3.20, now to him who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. We are all dreamers, like we all dream big. Um, but God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, way above our, our loftiest ideas. Uh, to those of us who trust in him, you know, that's our, our prayer, that's our heart cry. Together, I think we can, we can grab onto that and get excited about it. Um, 